My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. You may disagree with me, brothers and sisters, but that's okay. I have a microphone. One of the most beautiful places in the world is in and around the area of Cape Town in South Africa. If you ever fly or drive into Cape Town, you'll see this beautiful mountainous region. They actually have a, a region of mountains called the Twelve Apostles because there's 12 mountains and they name one after how many apostles are there? Twelve. They call them the Twelve Apostles. But then you have this one big one called a Table Mountain. You can, this is your homework assignment. You can Google Table Mountain when you get home and you'll see what I'm talking about. And they call it Table Mountain because, well, it looks like a mountain that's also a giant table. Right? It looks like I don't know, a giant came and took a massive sword and just and just lopped the top off of the mountain. Hence the name Table Mountain. And it's a, it's a beautiful uh, sight to see. And one of the coolest things I've ever seen was being on top of Table Mountain and watching the fog kind of roll off and through the crevices and curl with the sun streaming in. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. At one moment you can have just bright sunlight and another moment you're in mist and you can't see anything. It's quite, it's quite lovely. To get to the top, you either have to take a cable car or you have to hike up to the top. Guess which one I chose. But wherever you are in Cape Town, Table Mountain is pretty much visible everywhere. It's pretty much visible everywhere. It, it, there's always this reminder of its permanence and it points to something majestic. You can use it wherever you are as a point of orientation wherever you are in Cape Town. And hundreds of thousands of people a year flock to it, to climb it, or to hike it, or to ride to the top, to take pictures, and to spend time at this mountain because they understand and they see the awe of it, the majesty of it, and its beauty. And in today's reading, we're going to see this theme of ascending the mountain of the Lord. This theme of encounter with God on the mountain, this theme of transformation on the mountain, upon that encounter with the Lord. My sermon title this morning is The Mountain of the Lord. In the first reading that we heard from 1 Kings, this is Elijah's conversation on the mountain with God. And this happens right after his greatest, probably what is his greatest achievement as the prophet of Yahweh, the prophet of God. Right? All his life he's been contesting with Baal worshippers and with King Ahab and Jezebel in particular who were notoriously sinful. And this is the final, well not the final test, but well, basically for his ministry, this is like the big test between him, the prophet of God, and all of the prophets of Baal. And we've heard the story, if you've been to Sunday school, or I've heard it read here in church, right? They have the contest, and they build the two altars, and, well, they build an altar to Baal, and the prophets of Baal, they run around, and they're cutting themselves with stones, and they're doing their, you know, enchantments and all that stuff to try to get Baal to answer by fire, right? By fire, well, ba lightning, basically, because Baal's a lightning storm god, so it's lightning in that story. And Elijah's like, maybe you guys, maybe yell a little bit more, maybe he'll hear you. 
oh, I can't hear you. Maybe he went away on a trip. And then my favorite is, maybe he's in the bathroom. I don't know. What's going on? And we know the story, right? Elijah builds a trench, pours water in it, pours water on the altar. He prays to the Lord. The Lord sends the fire down and obliterates uh, everything. And then the part we didn't learn in Sunday school, Elijah takes all the prophets of Baal down to the river and kills them all. And the people proclaim, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But here's the thing. <laughs> after that whole thing, after the people saw this, do they all, all of a sudden, like, yeah, let's go back to worshiping God? No, they don't, right? They don't. They just keep on as business as usual. And then this is when Jezebel says, after he has this victory, she's like, she sends him a messenger, and the messenger basically is like, I'm going to kill you, bro. And he is scared, and he runs for his life after this massive victory. And he has a very long journey. He's like, well, the only place I can go is to the mountain of God to be safe, right? So he takes this long journey to the mountain of God. He's given food that lasts the journey. He's fed by ravens and all that good stuff. No, that's a different story. But he's fed uh, miraculously and he goes through the desert and he comes to the mountain of the Lord at last. And he ascends the mountain and then it says, the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord came to him. And you have to remember, brothers and sisters, from a few weeks ago where we talked about the word of the Lord, or in Hebrew, the Dabar Yahweh. That this is not a disembodied voice. Okay? Whenever we see the word of the Lord came to somebody, this isn't God speaking from heaven saying, you know, Sean, this is God. <laughs> and Sean's like, really? Did I inhale too much smoke on my last shift? Maybe something's going on there from the fire that I put out. Right? No. Barry, this is God. Barry's like, I'm not that old to be hearing voices. What the heck is going on? When it says the word of the Lord came to him or came to that person, this is a person that is standing there talking to them. Remember, we, we looked at the Samuel story, right? A couple of weeks ago. That God, in human form, comes and talks to him. And then after the word of the Lord, Elijah is like, I'm the only one left, God, I'm it, I'm it, I'm all alone. And then he has this vision of this magnificent demonstration of God's presence and absolute power. Earthquakes, fire, wind. All of that stuff happens there on the mountain. And then we have this still small voice that speaks to him. And again, after all of that, he says, I'm the only one left. Nobody, there's nobody else. It's just me. Maybe feeling sorry for himself a little bit, but can you blame him? Can you blame him? Have you ever felt alone like that? Like Elijah? Not like in a general sense, like, oh, I'm lonely, I'd really like a best friend. Not like that. But in the sense that it feels like there's no one who shares your convictions. Have you ever felt like that? I have. Sometimes I'll feel like that in a room full of clergy. There's no one like me who shares my convictions. And sometimes it's hard for me to make connections because of that. Because there are not a lot of people that I've found, brothers and sisters, that do share my convictions. But I'm not the only one. And it would be arrogant of me to think I'm the only one. 
There are others that have not bowed the need to Baal, God says to Elijah. They're out there. And God even gives them the number. There's 7,000 people who are still serving me and worshiping me. You are not the only one. They're not the only one. Or how about this? Like Elijah, how he runs away. Have you ever been touched by God's presence? Or an experience with God that you couldn't explain? Maybe I've prayed for you and you've felt something very like, what is this? Or maybe you've come and you've partaken of Holy Communion and as you eat the bread or drink the wine, you all of a sudden had this sense of God's presence right next to you or on you. Maybe you've had a time in prayer where you've had this sense of God just being there with you. Maybe after a time of loss or maybe during a time of prayer where you're trying to seek, Lord, what do I need to do? Where do I need to go? And you just had a sense of God saying, I've got you. I had that experience once, many years ago before I came to this church. There were a lot of things happening in my life and in my, and where I worked. And I went away to the monastery that I go to every once in a while. And God graciously, graciously gave me that sense of his presence. He didn't talk to me or say anything to me, but I knew that whatever was going on in my life, that God would take care of me and take care of my family. And he did. And he brought me here. But have you ever been touched, touched by God's manifest presence that way? Have had an experience like that? And then immediately right after the next day, you go and you do something dumb? Right? Or you do something sinful, right? Kind of like Elijah. Not sinful, but just kind of dumb. After that massive victory, after that massive experience of God's power and presence, he runs scared. He runs scared. And he goes to the mountain. And God doesn't just say, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, dude. Let's get with it. No, he says, like I said earlier, there's 7,000 people who don't worship Baal still in Israel. You're not alone. And then he says, I want you to go find these two guys and anoint them as kings of these different places. Because God is going to use them to judge and to punish all of the enemies that Elijah had up at that point. Ahab and Jezebel and all of their wickedness, all of their sin, everything that they thought they were getting away with. Right? God sends him to anoint two people who will go, and even though they themselves don't serve God, God will use them to bring about his justice and his righteousness. And then he says, go and find Elisha and anoint him to be your successor. And it's not like he went to Elisha. We, we, we know the story. He, Elisha's plowing, right? And Elijah comes and anoints him. Elisha doesn't just, Elijah doesn't say, okay, you're the new guy. And then leaves and Elisha leaves Elisha standing there like okay now what do I do no when he anoints him as his successor it's his invitation to him you're going to follow after me learn from me follow me and then when I'm gone you will be God's prophet in Israel so he he returns he comes down from the mountain with this sense of renewed purpose that he actually is not alone he comes down with this sense that God is with him Right, that God has somebody who will support him and help him. Someone who will be able to, to, to anoint, to succeed him when it's his time. 
He has a sense of renewed mission, transformed by his, by his encounter on the mountain with the word of the Lord. And then when we look in the Gospel of Mark, we see Peter, James, and John ascending the mountain with Jesus. And they're going to encounter the same God that Elijah encountered. And in fact, as we heard from the reading, Elijah's actually up there too, along with Moses. And God, like, unlike this last vision, God is not in the whirlwind. God is not in the earthquake. God is not in a fire. But their encounter with God is in the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, fully human, fully divine. This is what the transfiguration is showing, is Jesus in his divinity. Peter wants to say, stay and begin to set up a place of worship, but they have to descend. They're called by Jesus to ascend, to have a vision of Jesus, to see Jesus as he is. And then also to have an encounter, not only with Jesus, who is the Godman, right? Our Lord whom we worship, but also he has an encounter with Moses and Elijah, two of the greatest figures of the Old Testament. But after that, they have to descend. They have to descend. And to me, it's interesting that Peter, James, and John, as they ascend the mountain, they see the very word of the Lord that appeared to Elijah. This because Jesus is the word of the Lord, God in flesh. St. John will call him the Logos. This encounter, this encounter with the same person, the same word of the Lord. He brings them up the mountain for this encounter. They don't fully understand it, but they will soon. They are called to the mountain to ascend, to see Christ, and to leave changed. And it marks them so much so that later on, St. Peter, as we heard from the reading that I just gave you, is reflecting on that experience at the end of his life, as he's anticipating the end of his life. And he's like, if you heard, right, he's like, I have to tell you this before I'm gone. I have to get this down. I need to tell you because it's, it's going to stir you up. It's what I saw will motivate you. What I experienced will inspire you because we didn't make all of this Jesus stuff up. These weren't clever stories. We didn't take the mythology of, you know, Horus, <laughs> right? We didn't take Egyptian mythology and then, and then switch it over and, and pretend it's really talking about Jesus because we're, we need money and we're trying to, you know, trying to get rich off of this stuff or trying to gain or amass power. He's like, we saw this and I have to tell you about what I saw while I can still remember because you need to hear it. The experience that I had will inspire you, it will motivate you, it will stir you up to obedience. We didn't, he says it, we did not make this up. He says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. It's interesting to me how Peter talks about Jesus' majesty as opposed to how St. John will talk about Jesus' majesty. Now, St. John talks about the transfiguration, but St. John also links Jesus' crucifixion Right? With glory. 
like his majestic glory. St. John focuses a lot on, on the crucifixion. But reflecting on this, St. Peter, he's not taking that point of view. These aren't, dis, these aren't different points of view that are opposed to one another. Okay, These are just different points of view of the same thing. We have to be careful when we read the Bible, right? Sometimes we have our Bible verses, right? We wait for somebody to quote a Bible verse and be like, oh, that's wrong. This is what it really means, right? Well, sometimes Scripture is speaking and showing us layers of things, right? And St. Peter, here in his epistle, he's saying that he's referencing the transfiguration. Yeah, he sees the transfiguration as Jesus' majesty, right? The transfiguration as Jesus' majesty on display. He's like, we saw it. We saw Jesus. And then they actually did hear a disembodied voice from heaven. The Father speaking, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. He's like, we saw Jesus. We heard the voice of the Father. This confirms what we taught you. What we taught you. He says, pay attention to it because as it transformed us, it will transform you. And then he has this very weird aside here about prophecy. And you're like, well, what's that about? Like this word of prophecy? What, what, do, you, what do you mean, this word of prophecy that I spoke to you? Well, he's talking about the, the, the scriptures, right? What he's saying is, what we told you is true. He's, he's linking all of these things together. He's like, pay attention to this word because as it transformed us, this experience that we had, it will transform you. It will transform you. And brothers and sisters, like I said a few moments ago, we ourselves are called to ascend the mountain. We are called to ascend the hill. If you read the Psalms or you pray the Psalms, you'll see this theme often, right? These are called Psalms of Ascent. And it's the psalmist rejoicing and worshiping as they ascend to the mountain of the Lord to offer worship and praise to the Lord and sacrifices to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that is what we do. We ascend the mountain to see Christ. We ascend him. We ascend to see Christ. And then when we encounter him, we are transformed by him. So then when we come down from the mountain, we ourselves can have a, a renewed sense of mission. Who are we? Who do we belong to? What has God asked us to do? That sense of mission is shaped by our vision of Christ. Who do we see Christ as? Do we see him as Messiah, as Savior and God? Or do we see him as just a regular guy who said some really nice things, but the Romans killed him, you know, because, you know, he, uh, he upset the political status quo. One of those has power, brothers and sisters, and one of those does not. Which Jesus are we serving? Light from light, true God of true God? Or just another guy killed by the state? I'll tell you what Jesus I want to serve. And I'll tell you which Jesus gives me a sense of mission, a sense of vocation. As we descend the mountain, we give a renewed sense of our task as his body to worship him in spirit 
and in truth. To follow him wherever he leads. Because our experience, brothers and sisters, like St. Peter talked about in his epistle. Like he said, we saw it, we heard it. And we are participants in that, brothers and sisters. And God's goodness to us, his love for us, and our vision of him as he saved us and forgive, has forgiven us. This is what grounds what we do. This is what grounds our gospel proclamation. Everything we say and everything we do leading us to the vision of Christ. And as we, this week on Ash Wednesday, begin to enter this holy season of Lent, I pray that that vision of Jesus will grow ever brighter in our hearts as we follow him to his death and the resurrection. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast for Zion Stone Church. I'm Reverend Mike Lantzman, and I'd like to extend to you an invitation, if you're ever in our area, to please worship with us Sunday mornings at 1015. If you'd like to get a hold of me, or would like some information about the church, or just have some questions, feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page or via email. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.